You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast. I have Trisha Pritikin. Uh, we're going to be talking about the, uh, the effects of radiation exposure on people. And uh, looks like Trisha, unfortunately, lived near a Superfund site, Hanford, I guess, in Washington, which she'll get into. So, Trisha, welcome. How are you doing? Hi. Great. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me today. So, where, uh, where did, what's, your, you know, what's your background with radiation? What happened to you and you know, what's yeah. the story behind it? Okay. Um, the first thing I think people need to kind of uh, know about is what where this Hanford Nuclear Weapons Facility is that I'm going to be talking about and what it did. And it is located in southeastern Washington State uh, near the three small towns of Richland, Pasco, and Kennewick. It's in the middle of the desert in eastern Washington. Yeah. And a lot of people haven't heard of it. I, you know, it's funny. I heard there's a desert in Oregon. I didn't even realize there's a desert <laughs> in Washington. Yes, there's a vast desert in eastern Washington. And that's one of the reasons uh, this site was chosen. It's one of the former Manhattan Project. Uh, the Manhattan Project was, of course, the, the project international, actually, with cooperation from Canada and Great Britain to create the first atomic bomb uh, during the war in, in a race. Uh, against supposedly Germany, who the Allies thought were was creating a bomb at the same time. So there was a real rush to create a nuclear weapon. And they produced plutonium at Hanford um, starting in late 1944. And they had a total of nine production reactors at its peak. So you have to envision nine reactors along the Columbia River, each separated by about a mile from the next one. In case any of them it would explode, they tried to keep the others from exploding. Um, hmm. And the plutonium was created when uranium fuel rods in the reactor were irradiated and then shoved out the back of the reactor, transported by Hanford's own private train over to chemical separation facilities, and then the pl plutonium was extracted chemically. And that released all kinds of radionuclides into the air and into the water, into the Columbia River. What, what so year did this uh, start occurring, you think? Um, well, the startup of Hanford was late 1944. So that's when the releases began. These were secret releases. 
no one knew anything was coming out of Hanson. Um, and they continued for 40 years thereafter, which is a long, long time to irradiate civilians without telling them. But the levels of radionuclides released to the air and water decreased over time. So the highest were from 1944 through around the end of the 1960s. People after that time were exposed as well, but not to as high a level. Mm-hmm. So what's a, <clears throat> so you were in this area for how many years and what age, what age were you or ages? Right. Well, it's important when you're talking to someone exposed to uh, one of these facilities, um, bomb-producing facilities, to find out when they were there and when they were born. I was born in 1950, and the reason that's important is that the highest releases were from about 1944 through 60. So I was there during a period where there was a lot of stuff coming out of it. And um, I was born in Richland at the Atomic Energy Hospital there called the Cadillac Hospital. Uh, the town of Richland was built just for Hanford operators. So if you were not one of the, you know, scientists or engineers, your family couldn't live there. You had to live across the river in Pasco or in Kennewick. So we lived in Richland. It was kind of a Mayberry sort of town with picket, white picket fences. Uh, the Atomic Energy Commission provided lots of culture for everyone so they wouldn't be bored out in the middle of the desert. Um, so it seemed like a perfectly safe place, to, but apparently the employees like my dad, who was uh, a nuclear engineer overseeing the, the operation of the, at the time, five reactor, um, were not told uh, that they were not informed as to the levels of radiation. They may have known something was coming out, but safety meetings held by Hanford operators on a regular basis uh, reassured employees that all was safe. Yeah. Well, weren't they, were they scanned when they went into work or left work with Geiger counters? Or I figure they'd have mm-hmm. them hand, handy at work. I know that yeah. doesn't mean you could understand if you're exposed, but. No, that's a very good point that you make. With the uh, Atomic Energy Commission carefully monitored its workers, whether they were at Hanford or Oak Ridge or Savannah River or whether they were test site operated or at a test site. They gave them pencil badges and other scans, and they recorded their on-the-job exposure. Interestingly, but not surprisingly, they didn't monitor exposures to civilians or anyone who was not a worker. And so those of us who grew up downwind and got a lot of exposure during childhood, which is one of the most vulnerable times of life, we don't know how much we were exposed to because there was no monitoring of us. Therefore, any doses that we would receive any estimated doses instructed after. So when did you notice that things were happening or when did the town notice uh, exposure happening or you know, sickness <laughs> happening? Well, it was a slow process. If you think, a lot of people have heard of Nevada test site and the atomic tests that were conducted there above ground beginning at B1. And those tests produced a huge mushroom cloud that could be seen from Las Vegas. In fact, a lot of the casinos enjoyed the entertainment value. Um, and the fallout cloud could be seen passing over communities. And so people there, when they started developing illnesses and cancers, suspected the, the test and the fallout. At Hanford, everything was invisible. Uh, we were not told there was radiation being released. You couldn't see it. You couldn't smell it. You couldn't. So the first signs of anything being wrong, <clears throat> excuse me, downwind of Hanford, took place in the farmlands or the farms right across the Columbia River from all the reactors. And there was a farmer there named uh, 
Juanita Andrzejewski and her husband, Leon, began to notice that some really young men working the fields were suffering heart attacks. This was in around 1970s, the mid-1970s. So the place had been operating for several decades. And um, then neighbors started to report cancer. And she became very concerned and wanted to know what was going on in her community, created a map that indicated or recorded everyone's uh, locations, their residences, whether they had cancer or a uh, heart attack. And the she put an X for every cancer and an O for every heart attack. And the numbers of X's and O's multiplied to a very frightening level. Um, and so one of the one of her neighbors named Tom Bailey, who was a friend of one of her sons, contacted a local paper in Spokane called the Spokesman Review. And a young reporter named Karen Dorn Steele uh, came out to the farming area. She drove from Spokane, about 240 miles away, and met with the farmers uh, and uh, realized that there was something going on. In one mile stretch near Tom Bailey's house, every house except one had families with had members of their family. This is wow. now referred to as the Death Mile. Um, so was there a particular type of cancer, or just various kinds? That's a good question too. I want to mention one other thing that happened, which happened both at Nevada Test Site and here. One, there's something called a latency period that occurs after exposure to low-dose ionizing radiation, which is what came out of Hanford, which is what came out of Nevada Test Site, which is what people have been exposed to downwind of Fukushima, and interestingly, which is what people were exposed to downwind of Chernobyl and Three Mile Island. So after low-dose ionizing radiation exposure, the latency periods vary for different diseases, but the first diseases to show up are, are childhood leukemia. And childhood leukemia showed up to the north and east of the test site in the mid-1950s. And um, in the Tri-Cities, which is what Pasco, Kennewick, and uh, Richland are referred to, uh, families started showing up at a hospital called Our Lady of Lourdes in Pasco with leukemias, child, kids sick with very sick with childhood leukemia in the mid 1950s. And that was so. That's the first cancer that shows up, and there are many, many baby graves in Richland in the historic cemetery. There are 299 baby graves in a row, and we are trying. We being a nonprofit, I work with. We are trying to obtain the death certificates to find out how many of those men childhood. So that's huh. the first disease to show up, and then. Um, Downwind of Nevada test site, the second disease to show up was thyroid cancer, and that's because of the radioiodine and the fallout. Downwind of Hanford, we had a very similar mix of radionuclides released, even though this was production, not a testing site. So most of us got radioiodine in our baby milk, and any, you know, radioiodine was in the air, radioiodine was in the food, any dairy products, that plus a vast array of other biologically significant radiations. So we saw thyroid cancers. We saw autoimmune diseases developing, a lot of uh, baby deaths, neonatal deaths, uh, miscarriages, a range of cancers, not just thyroid. And so, but I wanted to just um, describe a little bit more what happened next, if, if that's okay, after the map. So after uh, Karen Dern Steele started writing stories from members of the families over in the farms across the Columbia from the Hanford Reactors and Chemical Separation Facility. And people started to realize there was something going on downwind. And Karen started uh, looking into a night in 1961 when a whole lot of lambs and ewes on the farms 
uh, were born, the whole lot of lambs were born severely deformed on a night they call the night of the little demons. Like hundreds of lambs were born dead, deformed, grossly deformed, and then the ewes died either in, you know, the birthing process or right after. And she realized that this was very similar to what happened in 1953 after the upshot, one of the upshot knothole tests at Nevada Testa, where hundreds and maybe even more, yeah, thousands actually, of ewes and lambs died and the, the lambs were grossly deformed. Um, very similar. So this is a real indication that something was wrong there and possibly radiation facility. So well, the pressure may I ask you something quickly? Um, yeah. This is out of the timeline, but they won't come right back to the timeline. But, yeah. you know, I've, I've, I've interviewed recently a, a number of people that, you know, worked for various nuclear companies and they're talking about a new nuclear age and that it's going to be safe and no problems. And, you know, not a lot of people were, were hurt by it anyway. Huh. Uh, just, uh, just quickly, have you heard yeah. of such things that, you know, there's a new nuclear age coming and it'll be just fine? And do you think there's uh, any credence yeah. to that or is that complete craziness? Well, you know, reactors can melt down, reactors can leak. What I'm talking about in my story is nuclear, you know, weapons production reactors, but the premise of the reactor is the same. It's just the end product. You can have a reactor producing power. You can have a reactor that produces plutonium. In fact, one of Hanford's reactors produced both plutonium and power. So the dangers posed by a production reactor and a you know plutonium production reactor and a power production reactor are quite similar. You can look at what happened at Three Mile Island. If the cooling system breaks down somehow, you can get the you know a chain reaction going and you can't stop it. If the fuel rods don't aren't inserted quickly enough, you know the control rods aren't inserted quickly enough, you can have a problem. You have waste that is much of which has that you know long, long half lives, and you got to do something with the waste. And now we have you know radioactive waste piling up at various reactors, even the ones that have been closed, with no idea where to put it. At Hanford, we have an almost uncontrollable amount of high-level radioactive waste. The Department of Energy is now trying to reclassify as low-level waste, and very dangerous. So. Every reactor poses potential for injury to those downwind, plus all those who work in the place if something could happen. They're not failed. So there is no safe nuclear future. There would be less carbon. You know, it is not an emitter of carbon dioxide. That's true. So you have it's green, but it also creates a ton of problems with long-term radioactive waste. It's green, but it's glowing green. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, you have to balance. I mean, yes, you're helping the environment, but no, you're not helping the environment. You have this nuclear waste that's going to be there for a very long time, and the only solution anyone's really thought of is to bury it deeply, shoot it into space, vitrify it, but it's there for a very long time. And its effects on you know, on humans and animals and plants uh, is, is vast. So definitely not a safe nuclear all right, well, let's go back to your timeline. I'm sorry. I just wanted to ask oh, you that. Oh, no but... problem. I think that's a good question. So as the pressure grew on the Department of Energy to release early Hanford operating records, um, because of the map that, that Juanita Andrzejewski had done, it got picked up by the media, so it was now well known. And then a reverend who was also a chemist in Spokane named William Huff um, was very troubled by the fact that there was a plan afoot to create just what we were talking about, a permanent nuclear waste dump 
at Hanford. And he realized if that happened, if that was all these shipments of nuclear waste would go through his town, which is Spokane, which is to the northeast of Hanford. And so he wrote a sermon called The Silent Holocaust, in which he warned his congregation about the dangers of uh, mishandling and misuse of radionuclides. That became a motivating force behind the increasing pressure by the public on the DOE to relate to release early Hanford operating agreement. Um, and so he, a group of his congregants formed formed a nonprofit called the Hanford Education Action, and they held a couple of symposiums on the dangers of Hanford, the potential dangers of they hadn't been as yet. You know, they didn't know what was happening or what, it, if anything. And they invited the site DOE site manager, Michael Warren, in 1986 to come talk. To and he kept reassuring them that Hanford was safe, and they kept arguing, the HEAL members kept arguing it probably wasn't. And they said, prove that it was. So finally, um, Michael Lawrence and the DOE decided to declassify 19,000 pages of early Hanford operating, <clears throat> I mean, excuse me, early Hanford operating records. Those records revealed that Hanford had released over 750,000 curies of radioiodine and a vast array of other really har potentially harmful radionuclides into the air and the water over 40 years of operation. And just to put it in perspective, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I was gonna, so isn't that millicuries? Is it curies, 750,000 curies? Yes, not millicuries, right. So what's the equivalent of that? Well, I just wanted to put it in perspective by comparing it to Three Mile Island. I'm not saying Three Mile Island didn't harm anyone because I believe that that, that incident in 1979 did harm some people. But 15 to 21 curies of radioiodine were released there. 750,000 plus curies of radioiodine were released from Hanford. See, it's staggeringly, he's staggering. Um, what would be the equivalent uh, exposure recommended, you know, for the average person in a year as compared to that level? I I can't quote that off the top of my head, but I could look it up for you. I just don't want to. Okay, but just ballpark. Do you think it's? Thousands oh, of times, I mean, millions of times. If, if that if that level of radioactive materials was released from a, of a facility today, everyone would be evacuated. The milk would be confiscated. It would be a national a national disaster. No one would be allowed into the area. I mean, just just um, and they didn't, you know, they didn't warn us. They didn't tell us not to drink the milk. They didn't give us potassium iodide tablets to protect our thyroids. The Atomic Energy Commission and later the Department of Energy did nothing to protect the public. Whereas at Three Mile Island, as you saw probably, women and children were evacuated. The milk was quarantined. I mean, it's not perfect, and people were injured there. I'm convinced of it, but it's quite a contrast to what happened. With <clears throat> okay. So, yeah. yeah, go ahead with the story, or if it's in time with for me to ask you chronology, right? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, so now, once the the 19,000 pages of early Hanford operating agreement documents were released, it was revealed that all this stuff had come out. And there was also an actual experiment that took place in 1949 called the Green Run, uh, in which 7,000 or so curies, actually more than that, of radioiodine along with xenon radioactive were released without any filters on the stacks. And it was part of a, I believe it was an Air Force Hanford experiment to find out whether they could track this radioactive gas effective and that would allow them to tabs on uh, the former Soviet Union plutonium production because the Soviet Union tested atomic bomb in 1949. 
So mm -hmm. U.S. was very worried about them accelerating their production. <clears throat> so so in, their, in, their, in the release of these documents, what did they see? What was the analysis? What kind of analysis? You mean what was the justification for the releases? Or no, but once they were released, you know. Yeah. In addition to seeing how much was released, what other yeah. data was gathered from insights? Okay. Well. Interestingly, in February 86 is when these documents were declassified. In April of 86, Chernobyl occurred. And so the nation's attention became, was focused on Chernobyl and a very similar reactor at Hanford became the subject of concern. It was a reactor very much like the Chernobyl number four. It had no containment vessel. So Congress's attention focused on Chernobyl and the potential for a Chernobyl-like meltdown to occur in the U.S., uh, but what happened was that diverted focus from the Hanford downlanders, all the people who'd been exposed, all the people who were reporting illnesses, the fact that so much had been released got very little attention. No congressional hearings were held, um, so the attention just swished right over to Chernobyl at that. And, um, but people were ill. They were reporting cancers, autoimmune disease, and now they felt they understood what the cause of all this was that had lived down. And litigation was filed beginning in 1990, personal injury litigation by over 3,000 people. Um, it was called Inri Hanford Nuclear Reservation Litigation. Do you want me to kind of describe what happened with that? Well, I'd like to get more into the the science of it. So, what, so I guess there would be, I mean, you said leukemias were showing up pretty quickly after exposure, yeah. even right. you know, a short latency period, maybe I don't know, months or years, a few years. What about the uh, effects of, yeah, so that, that's, I guess, short term. What about long term? What happens at 10, 20, 30 years out? Ah, that's 40 also a really good, good question. Um, the thyroid, my, I probably should talk a little bit about what happened to me because I'm pretty typical. Um, I was, because I was born and raised uh, at next to Hanford at, during a time of uh, when a lot of radionuclides were going out into the air, my thyroid um, absorbed a lot of the radioiodine because I didn't have any potassium iodide pills. My parents weren't warned, so I just took in a lot of radioiodine that crossed the placenta when my mother was pregnant with me, and then I got a lot of radioiodine from milk because I wasn't breastfed, from baby formula, et cetera. So um, the, that it takes for thyroid cancer longer. It, there's a longer latency period. So what happens is a person goes along for some years and doesn't feel bad at all. They feel fine. And then they start having weird health problems. Like I started having strange health problems when I was around 18. I started to, oh, <clears throat> um, well, my period stopped, which is bizarre for an 18-year-old, so they were really worried about that. So menses is, is impacted. I started to gain and lose weight for no apparent reason, even though my diet didn't change. And then by the time I was in college um, in the 70s, um, I started to have muscle cramping, and I developed cat scratch fever, which is a disease that uh, only people with impaired immune systems normally get nowadays. And then I went to law school in 1980, I was accepted into law school, and I had what looked like a heart attack. At the beginning of law school, they hauled me to the ER, and it turned out to be my esophagus had contracted because my thyroid, which was very, very inflamed from an autoimmune process, had, had caused my esophagus right next to it to contract. Um, and then I started to, I was very tired. I, I still have that chronic fatigue and uh, <clears throat> uh, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of us 
now have thyroid problems. Um, a lot of women have had infertility problems, many cancers. My dad died of thyroid cancer. My mother had malignant melanoma. Um, my mom had thyroid disease, hypothyroidism, and hyperparathyroidism, which is a little bit complicated. But the thyroid has parathyroids around it, and mm. the radioiodine affects both the thyroid and parathyroid. And the parathyroids control calcium levels in the blood. <clears throat> so she had too much calcium in her blood, which caused her heart valve to calcify and have a lot of other problems. You know, I lost my parathyroid mm. when cancer was found and my thyroid was taken out. So now I have hypoparathyroidism. So these are problems that show up later. You know, depending. Legacy periods can be a little longer for a lot of things. And, um, well, I, I, don't, I don't have a thyroid either, but, you know, oh, I don't think it's because of, of that exposure. But I, ha- I had the, uh, you know, the, the 131 iodine. So that was a ah. weird feeling when I had it. But, uh, yeah, yeah I, watched, I, watched, I actually watched a, I watched a Chernobyl documentary while I was in the, yeah. you know, the first few days of having that stuff. My wife's like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> oh, man. How long ago did you have all this happen? Uh, about a year and a half. Oh, so it's pretty recent. Yeah. yeah, you know, I, I guess I've always been fascinated by, you know, radiation, and yeah. unfortunately, I got to experience it a little bit. But you know. I'm sorry about that. People oh, have I'm, said it, it's very it's okay. eerie when they bring the I-131 and, and they put you in a room by yourself and you have to flush the toilet twice and all that. <laughs> it is very eerie. Yeah, it is because <laughs> it's 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 an unseen thing and it's it is it is very eerie actually. And like yeah. I said, you know, I've had a you know, my family would like, you know, they, they, I didn't want them to come in my room. So they stayed away and they would, you know, like put food near the door and I would have the food. And it just felt like really weird. And again, I was watching like Chernobyl documentaries on YouTube. (laughs) Yeah, good, good combination. Don't do that. that. That is one of the most common problems in exposed populations, radiation exposed, is the radio iodine related problem, the thyroid. And the parathyroid. You see that, you know, you're seeing that now downland of Fukushima, too. You're oh, really? The incidence of, uh, of, you know, really? There's a huge incidence? Quite a bit. There's quite a bit of thyroid cancer amongst children. Um, I think the government is trying very hard to not let the public, you know, the public, the international public know how bad it is. But, yeah, you're seeing children with thyroid cancers. It's like you did after Chernobyl. So, anyway, I'm so what, what do you want, I mean, what is your role? What have you chosen for your role to be and how do you want to make a positive impact? Oh, thanks. Okay, good question. I like that. One thing I did, which I feel really good about, even though it was a lot of work, <laughs> is I, at the end of this litigation that I mentioned before, which was in Hanford, which took 24 years. Isn't that incredible? To, get, to conclude. Longest civil litigation in eastern Washington. Um, a few people got meager settlements, very small. Not there was there were some bellwether trials in 2005. Two people got jury verdicts, but out of more than 3,000 plaintiffs, only some of them got meager settlement. And uh, so I decided to collect the oral histories of about 24 plaintiffs, and um, I put them together in a book that's being published by University of Kansas Press, coming out in February. And a lot of these people have never spoken publicly before about their experiences, but putting their stories all mm-hmm. together and substantiating what they're saying, like if they claim there were people coming out to test their farm animals with Geiger counters, I went and looked up the old HEW, that's Hanford Engineer Works, documents to show there was a study with Geiger counters where they went out and measured thyroids. You know, I, I just sort of uh, documented everything to make sure everybody was really credible. 
And uh, I also I sort of compared our situation at Hanford with exposures down in the Nevada test site. Put the two stories together, but there were so many similarities in the way the Atomic Energy Commission um, ignored, uh, disrespected, and maltreated civilians downwind of both locations. Um, so um, what I want to do, I collected those stories, and I think the, everybody's going to be really proud of this book. I've had all kinds of positive feedback on it already. Um, and we're doing some book launches next spring in Chicago and at MIT and over here on the West Coast. And then I also, we have a nonprofit called CORE. Have you heard of this? It's called Consequences of Radiation Exposure, Washington State Nonprofit. Okay, it's a 501c3, and our whole goal is to just keep these stories, not just of Hanford, but of people exposed to low-dose ionizing radiation globally, keep those stories in the public eye to let people know what happened to people who were exposed, and hopefully to prevent these exposures from occurring in the future. We uh, have a website, you know, I think it's corehanford.org, but uh, so those are the two things that I'm doing now that pertain to Hanford. Um, but it's not, I focus on much broader, not just on Hanford, because similar exposures, identical diseases, you know, and cancers that come out of these exposures, whether it's from a production facility, a testing facility, or a reactor, it's important to see the whole thing as one big. A quick question. So Fukushima, when was it built, if you know? and. Mm. That's interesting. Was it was it a lot more modern and supposedly better than other reactors, and yet it's still had a problem? You know, I'm not the person you should talk to about the actual type of reactors there. I think they were General Electric reactors. But these, you know, the problem there was, as I understand it, was that there was a wall built to protect against tsunamis next to the Fukushima Daiichi reactors, but the wall was not high enough to protect you know, the reactors in case of an earthquake followed by tsunami based on a study that had been done. So it was known that that wall needed to be higher. But so, you know, but I'm not sure exactly of the year of these reactors. You'd have to look that up. Um, so I don't know that. I, mean, I figured that. Fukushima would be a lot more recent, but I guess for, you know, yeah. because of its unique circumstances, it still couldn't uh, be safe. Well, you know, I'm not, the, the whole issue seems to stem from the fact that the, Tsunami knocked out the generators that that made the backup generators that would have kept the cooling water going circulating. So anyway, there's a lot written on that, and there's some ongoing litigation. I think it's just there's been an appeal filed because the decision came down against the plaintiffs who were injured uh, downwind of Fukushima. So we'll see where the appeal goes. But um, yeah, so I'm not sure the exact year of the. Right. So so your book's coming out, and what? What would you hope to be the result of, of all your work? Um, is giving a voice well, to these people, or is there another thing? I think this book could be very useful in curricula, whether it's high school or college, studying environmental exposures and environmental justice. It talks a lot about the litigation and what worked and what didn't in both scenarios, both downwind of Nevada test site and downwind of Hanford. You know, the two different type. they were two different types of litigation. One was filed under the Federal Tort Claims Act. The other was filed under Price-Anderson. So this sort of talks about what needs to be done to revise, revise you know, the way that our country responds to these disasters. But it, And also having these personal stories is really useful, I think, in curricula, where you want to have the students 
relate to the people. Just individual stories are one of the best ways to, to engage readers. And just to get the word out, you know, just to, with through personal stories to make people understand and remember that we have to be very careful when it comes to citing nuclear facilities and thinking about populations that could be injured from operations and accidents at reactors and also to think about all these people who've been exposed when testing was done in the Pacific, Marshall Islands, about a test site and production facilities like Hanford. Have you visited other sites or have you have you tried to go back to Hanford to visit in some way? Oh, or yeah. have you gone to Chernobyl or uh, let's see, I just got back from Hanford last week where I gave a, a talk about this very topic at a local college called Columbia Basin College, and they were holding festivities at the same time in the city of Richland to commemorate the um, startup of the B reactor 75 years ago, and so this was, but no mention was made in any of those festivities about all the people who'd been injured by Hanford, the workers, the workers' kids, the downwinders, so I felt that having one presentation talking about that, at least we could do that, so we did that. I visited, I've been to the test, well, near the test site in French Polynesia, been to Nagasaki and Hiroshima. I've gone to Taiwan where they were building a reactor right near a little city, and it was really close. Just you know, talk to the legislature about that. And uh, I have not been to Chernobyl, but um, I've been to many of the sites in the U.S. I've gone to Oak Ridge, and I've gone to near the Nevada test site. I've been to Los Alamos, and as I said, I just got back from Hanford. I've been to Lawrence Livermore National Lab. So you get around if you work on these subjects long enough. <laughs> do you feel like, why did you go to these places? Just to bring attention, or did you feel drawn to them? Or Oh, I see, huh. Well, different purposes. I went to Oak Ridge because I was part of a federally appointed advisory committee called the Hanford Health Effects Subcommittee. And uh, sometimes we met jointly with some of the other populations that were exposed. Did that at, for Nevada test site and for Oak Ridge. And then I went to Oak Ridge also on a special project we were conducting to look at the exposures over there and how the public was responding to potential exposures. Was there a dose reconstruction project? What was happening? So so most of it was either on various projects or as part of this federally appointed board. And then CORE has gone and met uh, Downwind and Nevada test site as well, this group I mentioned. We're trying to move around different sites and engage hmm. people in locations. Have you have you wanted to go to Chernobyl or check it out? Is there any significance of that no, spot for you I, or not really? I always consider the uh, risk. I won't even go to on the B reactor tour at Hanford, even though they they always assuring the public that it's safe. They don't have any little they don't have dosimeters in there to tell you what the exposures are inside the B reactor. So I don't go on that tour until they make it safe. So you know I take I don't well, want to take more risks. I already got a lot of exposure when I was a kid, so Chernobyl would be a pretty big risk. And I think that disaster mm. tourists, as they call them, nuclear tourists, disaster mm. tourists, are taking a big risk when they go there. Whether they have a tie that whatever they call those suits, you know, whether they have safety suits on or not, and, you know, it's an, it's an exposure risk. I thought of a funny, well, it's not funny, but a funny sticker for hand foot. It would be like assuring the public that everything's safe since 1952 or 1946 or something. That would be their, <laughs> yeah. their company motto. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. 
we're, we're committed they, to uh, continuing to assure people that it's uh-huh. safe. Well, they do allow children to go on these to the B reactor, which is the world's first full-scale plutonium production reactor. And if they had, you know, if they had dosimeters in the bus on the way out and on the pathway leading into the B reactor and inside the reactor that showed that the readings, residual radiation, were really low and safe, then I'd be okay with that. But they don't. I don't believe them. And I'm a pretty reasonable person. I really am. So I'm well, not even, like, even when the even when the dosimeter isn't too late by that time, like if you get a high reading on a dosimeter, <laughs> yeah. it's probably too late, right? Well, well, yeah, you've already been exposed. That's right. But if it's consistently showing really low, you know, levels, then perhaps you can allow children in, but children are more vulnerable than adults mm. to radiation. Yeah. They just held an opera in there, and that worries me. You know, they had an opera as a celebration of this commemoration of the startup of a B reactor, and I worry about that sitting inside there for that long of a time, singing loudly. So, anyway, they could correct that if they took some corrective measures. I'd be more supportive. I'm just not inclined to go there till they do that. (laughs) That's true. Well, there has been a creation. A park has been created called the Manhattan Project Historic National Park. Have you heard of this? Uh, I believe so, but I don't know much details. Tell me about it. It was, uh, I think, uh, President Obama signed an executive order supporting this park, and then, uh, but there hasn't been an appropriation as yet that I know of. It involves three sites: Hanford, Los Alamos, and Oak Ridge. And at each site, there's supposed to be sort of a unified park where people can go and see what happened and how the bomb was tested, produced, uh, all that. But um, each site should have exhibits in it and stories that are told and core is trying to encourage the park service it's a national park service department of energy joint project we're trying to encourage both entities to include the stories of civilians exposed downwind of each site and workers who have been injured and their children Um, thus far there hasn't been funding so there aren't exhibits yet but the national park service has been communicating with us on this and we're hoping that we don't have to keep pressuring everybody to include our stories because we are part of the story. So that's an issue that's mm-hmm. interesting. Well, very good. Well, Trish, it was, uh, it was good talking to you, and, you know, the work you're doing is, like, super important. Yeah, thank and, you. Uh, but, uh, thank yeah, you. how can people get in, in contact with you or find out about the organizations you're working with? Oh, okay, great. Let's see. Um, hmm, I wonder what, what do people usually do? Give a website probably is the best, I suppose. The best uh, way to contact me is my website, which is Um Core is at corehanford.org. Um, I hesitate to use my personal email because I'll get inundated mostly. So I think through the website. Yeah, the website's fine. Okay. Great. And, well, very good. Um, well, uh, yeah. If they want to know more about this book, um, University of Kansas Press could give them more information. You just, I guess, you would just contact them their website. It's the book is called uh, "The Hanford Plaintiffs: Voices from the Fight for Atomic Justice." Okay, thank you for okay. coming. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious that we all have medical issues we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. 
Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.